All right. Well, welcome, Dr. Brito. Um, we have Dr. Brito here and Alfredo here as well, um, just delivering some of our uh, topics that um, we missed in our in-trainings exam. Uh, so welcome, Dr. Brito. Very happy to have you. Thank you. Great to be here. Awesome. Well, today we're going to talk about two uh, specific uh, topics, but then we're broadly going to talk a little bit more about uh, this fascinating condition. So the two things that we missed was diagnosing tuberculosis meningitis and interpreting TST or tuberculin skin test uh, results. So we'll talk a little bit about tuberculosis and um, we'll talk specifically about interpreting quantiferons and uh, um, PPDs or TSTs and how, you know, what common questions you get. So starting with tuberculosis in general, I think it's important to know, you know, what tuberculosis is, how it presents, and therefore from there, figure out where these diagnostics really fall into. So how would you classify tuberculosis? What kind of different tuberculosis, you know, manifestations or presentations do we have? Yeah, so usually tuberculosis, what, what occurs is that someone gets infected with tuberculosis in areas of high endemicity, it's usually very early in life. So they get an acute event, which is like a, a flu-like illness, very mild. And if they, in, in people who have a, an intact immune system, then they go on to control the infection, they go on, on a latent uh, tuberculosis state. So they have seeding of uh, tubercles or bacilli in different areas of the, of the body, but then that that inflammation is controlled and that infection is controlled by the immune system. And then the uh, disease goes, goes dormant or latent for a long time. Individuals can uh, last a lifetime and die and not have any complications of tuberculosis. But either due to aging and the normal decrease in immune function due to aging or because of a comorbidity like HIV, or renal failure, or taking, you know, um, you know, medications to suppress the immune system for autoimmune disorders, then this, the disease can reactivate, and then they get reactivation tuberculosis. Most cases of tuberculosis that you will see at UIH and at the VA and and any place a hospital in the U.S. are going to be cases of reactivation. Are those individuals who have had latent TB for a while and then they um, have some sort of immune suppression that reactivates the disease. And that is the most common presentation in the lungs, is that pneumonia that you see that, you know, is cavitary, usually protracted uh, illness, subacute uh, febrile illness that, that you would see in our patients that get admitted to a tertiary hospital like, like UIC. Awesome. And so um, uh, there are some... Um, there are some uh, features of the initial tuberculosis episode and folks get calcified lymphadenopathy in the mediastinus. So on occasion, you will do an x-ray and see calcified or granulomas, small granulomas in the lungs. And in someone who's completely asymptomatic, those are uh, remnants of that acute initial event that the patient had years ago when they were first, um, you know, um, when they were first diagnosed. And so the way you diagnose or make differentiation between latent and active is by doing the TSD, the skin test, the tuberculin skin test, or 
by doing a quantiferin. If someone is positive to those tests um, and don't have any symptoms of pulmonary disease, we usually uh, say that they're, they have latent tuberculosis infection. That's great. It's super interesting to, you know, understand and listen to uh, what Dr. Brito just said, which is really, if you understand the pathophysiology of, of, of tuberculosis, you'll get, you'll, you'll get a better sense of where these tests uh, really fall. And Dr. Brito mentioned some very important things that I'm going to focus on, which is kind of terminology, right? So when you have tuberculosis, it could be active or it could be latent. Active tuberculosis is symptomatic and can you know, be manifest in your lungs or other organs. Um, latent tuberculosis is not active. It's not symptomatic. The patient will have a history of being exposed to tuberculosis. So again, active or latent. And then Dr. Brito mentioned how most of our patients are reactivation tuberculosis. So they have active TB that reactivated after that initial exposure. So you have active uh, you know, pulmonary or extrapulmonary tuberculosis. Um, and then that active TB may be you know, reactivation tuberculosis, which is 90, 95% of patients. Um, and there are, there's, you know, a single digit percentage of patients that gets primary progressive tuberculosis. So can you have tuberculosis that, you know, you just got somewhere and, you know, didn't really have a strong enough immune system to fight? Yes, but that's highly unlikely. So in general, understanding that pathophysiology and those terms, you know, it's super important. Yeah. It's very, very important. And it's, if you, furthermore, I, I would add to that, that if you understand the pathophysiology, then you will understand the complications, like for example, tuberculosis meningitis. So that seeding of tuberculosis in the, during that initial um, basilemia, um, then you would have seeding of the CNS. And so upon reactivation of the disease, those um, tuberculi, but those bacilli that are in the brain are going to rupture and then they go in the subarachnoid space and they create meningitis and it's typically a basilar meningitis. And I think it's important to understand the differences between that meningitis and acute meningitis. One important di difference is that it's a, it's a more protracted illness. So it's like pulmonary tuberculosis, the difference between pulmonary tuberculosis and pneumonia. So you will have someone who has had symptoms for two, three weeks, not one week or two or four days like in strep pneumonia, right? And then the patient will have fever um, and the patient will have weight loss and night sweats. The same thing that with pulmonary tuberculosis. And there's some important distinctions because they will present with stiff neck and headaches. Um, the distinctions will be that usually tuberculosis meningitis, in my experience with patients I see, and if you read about it, you, you read about that, they uh, usually have uh, alter sensorium. So they would have um, delirium. So patients will have problems with mentation. They have cloudiness of consciousness, which is different from the regular meningitis patient. Because if you, regular meningitis patients who don't have encephalitis, they usually have headaches and they feel tired, and, but they can tell you where they are. They can tell you, you know, what date it is. Patients with men, uh, tubercular meningitis, they will have alter sensorium. That's so a chronic protracted meningitis with alter sensorium gives you an indication. The other thing is because it's a basilar meningitis, 
Um, and it creates a lot of inflammation in the base of the brain and fibrosis. Because, you know, tuberculosis causes a lot of fibrosis. It encases the cranial nerves. And the most important cranial nerves that are affected is the second nerve and the sixth nerve. So the optic nerve and the um, external ocular motor ner uh, nerve. So they will have six nerve palsy. So when you examine the eyes and they, you ask them to look sideways, they will have paralysis of the sixth nerve. And that is a feature not exclusive of tuberculosis meningitis, but in someone who has the right epidemiology, um, the right you know, presentation, it's usually very, very suggestive of tuberculosis meningitis. Listeria can cause all the, mm -hmm. the uh, basilar meningitis cause cranial nerve abnormalities, but in the test, and in life, but in the test, it's, it's usually going to be, the answer is going to be tuberculosis meningitis. So look at that chronic protracted illness that has meningismus, headaches, fever. But in addition to that, it would have clouding of the sensorium, delirium, and cranial neuropathy, especially mm -hmm. six nerves. If you have that, um, try to find tuberculosis in the option yep. market and move forward. Because a, a destructive basilar Yes. you know, highly deadly, um, you know, meningoencephalitis mm -hmm. and, you know, in the right patient with the right risk factors. Um, I, you know, it's hard to get a sense of um, perhaps what they're asking on the boards for this with regards to, uh, you know, this missed um, uh, item on our in-training exam, diagnosing TB meningitis, because it's hard to diagnose TB meningitis. That's what's I think interesting about tuberculosis, it's still a very classic disease where you have to not depend on advanced diagnostics, but rather on a combination of diagnostics, clinical, radiographic, and um, epidemiologic clues. Um, so that brings me to, you know, what are our diagnostic tools for TB? You know, we have our TST, you know, tuberculin skin test, also known as PPD. We have our quantiferon. These are tests for um, latent tuberculosis. For active tuberculosis, it's still that stain, you know, your AFB stain, looking for AFBs in whatever end organ, usually your lungs, but also, you know, anywhere else. Um, and then last but not least, we have PCRs that could look for tuberculosis, um, some fancy PCRs that are primarily used in high, in high uh, areas of high prevalence, like your um, expert TB RIF, which is basically a PCR for TB and resistance. So how do we handle all of these different um, diagnostics? We can maybe start with sputum AFBs and then move towards CNS and PCR stuff. Yeah, I, we could probably also start with the, uh, with the TST. And, sure. uh, that as you very well point out, TST, the skin tests and quantiferons are tests to diagnose um, latent tuberculosis infection. So if they are positive in someone with a suggestive history of tuberculosis, then they help you. If they're negative, they really don't. If you're suspecting tuberculosis in some, someone who has the right radiographic appearance, or you really think that the patient has tuberculosis meningitis or tuberculosis, you shouldn't take the test into consideration. If it's positive, it helps you because it tells you, well, maybe tuberculosis, especially the skin test. Because what happens with the skin test is that the more immunosuppressed, it is a, is a test that measures T-cell response, right? So if the person is immunocompromised, as they usually are in when they have tuberculosis, like if the patient has tuberculosis or, um, sorry, HIV, 
or is receiving uh, immunosuppressants, then the T cell response is going to be suboptimal. So the skin test is going to be uninterpretable most times. And that's why you have different um, levels of measurements depending on whether the person is immunocompetent or not. So we usually use a cutoff of less than five millimeters if the patient is immunosuppressed. If the patient is immunosuppressed more than five millimeters, sorry, sorry, more than five millimeters as the cutoff for saying that the test is positive. Um, I, the way I've learned it, I was telling Alfredo earlier that, you know, if it's more than five is for immunosuppressed, more than 15 millimeters is for someone who is uh, completely healthy um, like a young person who gets a PPD for work and for employment, and it's more than 15, then you consider positive. And then everybody else is more than 10. Yeah. Um, so your person who is an immigrant from a country of high prevalence, it would be more than 10. They, they love that on the boards. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, they give you someone from uh, South Asia that, or from Latin America that it's, that comes for residency training and then they do the PPD and it's more than 10, more than 10 is possible. Um, yeah, if someone from the Midwest, then it would be more than 15 because the Midwest is an area of low prevalence. Exactly. And, you know, just remember five, 10 and 15 and, you know, 15 is, is unusual in a question and in real life because 15 is a regular person without risk factors. 10 is a regular person with risk factors. Those are the people that you test. You don't go around doing PPDs on people. You go around doing PPDs on people with risk factors. If you came from abroad, if you work in a hospital. Now, if you have never set foot in a hospital and for whatever reason they're asking it as a pre-employment condition and you literally have no risk factors, then that's where the 15 could potentially come in. Uh, And then, you know, what you're really doing is measuring, you know, the memory. You know, do you remember this? Uh, exposure and then your immune system can be you know react more aggressively if it does and if your immune system is just not able to aggressively react that's where a lower cutoff comes in absolutely and then Uh, another this is kind of a total side note kind of more in the art of medicine sometimes you blur these lines when you have a really really strong risk factor so a person you know who uh you know just is taking care of a grandfather who had a pneumonia and all of a sudden is diagnosed with tuberculosis and that person has a, you know, PPD of eight or nine, that's a pretty strong risk factor. And, you know, you might kind of blur the lines a little bit on a case by case basis in the real world um, or, you know, in in situations like that, but in your boards, it'll always be five, 10, and then that rare 15. Yeah. Because of those problems with, with the test that, that test is not optimal for people who are immunosuppressed. And if you think about all the folks that you see in the hospital, you know, they have some sort of comorbidity that will make them immunosuppressed. That's why they're in the hospital. That's why you're taking care of them. Um, but then we've come up with other strategies for that reason. And also for the reason that PPD cross reacts with mycobacterium avium, which is the most common of these mycobacteria in the U.S., so if you're colonized with this mycobacterium avium or we've had a disease due to mycobacterium, you can turn positive um, and not be infected with tuberculosis. And that's actually a large number of the folks who test positive in the U.S. who have no risk factor, those risk factors that Alfredo is mentioning. And then for that reason, then we try to get 
better test and we got Quantifera, which measures in the lab the production of certain interferons that are um, unique to, tuberc to tuberculosis uh, bacilli. And so what you do is you expose what they do in the lab, and this is not the, the exact mechanism, is a, is a very high-level view of it, but they expose the cells, the cells of the patient, the white blood cells of the patients with tuberculosis, and then they measure the production. If they've seen tuberculosis before, then the, tuber the production will be higher. And then they compare it to a control. That's where you can read about it, but that's yeah. mostly it. It's, um, you know, and the quantifiering test, I think, can be confusing because it comes with so many different numbers. And it's important to recognize that the positive or negative result that you get is essentially a, a computer calculating those numbers. So you can have, you know, quote unquote, false positives or false negatives that are more to do with the relationship within those numbers. But think about it as a test tube, a, a, a PPD in a test tube. You know, how would you do a PPD in the test tube? First, you know, is your immune system awake? That's what we call the mitogen response. So they kind of tickle your macrophages. And if they, you know, have a high number, then, then the test can proceed. Then the second, you know, tube is the control, which is kind of the perfect positive. And then your test. And, you know, um, that's, that's kind of how you get to, to, um, to the quantifieron. Somebody on steroids might have a low mitogen response and therefore, uh, you know, an uninterpretable um, quantifieron. But it is this release of, of, of interferon. That's why the fancy name is interferon gamma release assay. And quantifieron is the brand. T-spot is another brand that is primarily used in Canada. Um, and, you know, same as the, your TSTs. You're going to use that for diagnosis of latent TB. So what about AFBs and PCRs? What's the role for that? And what are we going to do to diagnose TB meningitis for this guy? Yeah, you always, uh, the, the problem with, um, as you were mentioning earlier, um, it's a, it's a uh, as much a clinical disease as it is a laboratory, you know, uh, diagnosis uh, in, in, in terms of, because you have to go by very indirect measures. One of them is the CSF. So the CSF uh, fluid analysis. So you will have, you all know uh, this, that tuberculosis usually caused high WBCs in the order of more than 200, 200, 500 cells, WBCs is predominantly lymphocytes, um, like viral infections. Tuberculosis can also uh, cause lymphocytic pleocytosis. High protein, more than 100 usually, and low glucose. You've all heard that from medical school. And then so the one that causes um, low glucose in the fluid is usually tuberculosis, although bacterial meningitis can do that too. Um, but because it's pretty impressive at low glucose, so the, you know sometimes it's very it's very hard to to miss because it's they're impressive numbers. So if you have that formula, the CSA CSF formula, lymphocytic pleocytosis, hypoglucorrhea, that's low glucose in the fluid, and high protein, then you know it's suggestible tuberculosis. And then you're going to go look for the bacilli, which is what Alfredo was suggesting you do when AFBs mirror the fluid. Now, that usually is negative because uh, unlike strep pneumo or other causes of meningitis, there is a paucity of bacilli. There are not a lot of bacilli in the CSF that you're going to find by the smear. So they usually concentrate um, the, uh, the CSF. And if you concentrate the CSF and do a smear on that, you have a higher yield of finding the bacilli, but still, it's very difficult. Um, because 
but most of the disease, tuberculosis meningitis, is caused by the um, significant inflammatory response to the presence of tuberculosis rather than the number of tubercular, tubercular bacilli that you have in the fluid. So there can be very few and it's hard to find. Then the next step is culture. So you always want to do an AV. You always want to do a culture, even when we have molecular techniques, because that's what's going to tell you, except for refamping NINH, like you mentioned, the expert test, that's what's going to give you an idea of whether there is resistance, which is a big problem with tuberculosis. So you do an AV culture. The problem with culture is that it takes eight weeks, as you know, for we're getting better, but it takes four to eight weeks to grow because it's a slow grower, uh, the tuber tuberculosis. And then the other one is the uh, nucleic acid amplification tests. So the NATS, N-A-T, N-A-A-T, um, which is the most common is the PCR. So you do a PCR that has a very high sensitivity and specificity um, in the CSF. Um, so it's a, it's a very good test if done correctly. So you had to take the sample of the CSF and send it to the lab right away because that's all PCRs, it can get contaminated and whatnot. Um, so it, it, usually you're, you're uh, in your vignette, um, and I was actually reading um, the MEXA before we went uh, live with this conversation to look for the tuberculosis meningitis um, question to, to give you guidance. And the AFB was negative in the particular vignette that was on the MEXA. Mm -hmm. So it's negative. Don't let that dissuade you from your original diagnosis. If you think that clinically and because of the CSF formula, um, you, um, you suspect tuberculosis. And then send PCR, which is going to give you the definitive answer. Sometimes you have to go, um, is in the CNS, it's not common, but in other places like... Um, peritonitis due to tuberculosis, you have to, you have to go for, for a biopsy to try to find necrotizing granulomas, which is the whole, is the pathologic, um, pathognomonic. Yeah, the hallmark. Hallmark of tuberculosis is, or mycobacteria is necrotizing granuloma. The last thing, and then I'll shut up, is the ADA. So you can have, folks can have high ADA. Um, and the higher it is, the higher the sensitivity of the ADA to diagnose tuberculosis, but it's a it's an indirect measure of tuberculosis. What you really the direct way of diagnosing it is by culturing it in the CSF, and that can take weeks, and then doing a PCR, which is highly sensitive and specific. Yeah, and I think you know it, it is recommended to do a PCR um, when you're doing AFBs and sputum uh, to do at least one PCR. It's it has a cost effectiveness to it of knowing, you know, infection prevention needs, uh, you know, an AFB could be non-TB mycobacteria eventually, et cetera. So it can, it can give you actionable data, but in the CSF, it's really, you know, one of the, the gold standard uh, uh, tests that you always should do. You can find uh, TB more, if you are going to find it, the PCR will help you um, get an answer quick. And uh, particularly in, in, uh, you know, tissues where there's kind of less burden, um, you know, and, you know, as Dr. Brito was mentioning, your, your pleura, your serous surfaces, like your peritoneum, pleura, pericardium, joints, very unlikely you're going to find AFBs. If you do, you're lucky. AFBs may be lining the tissues, and that's where, you know, you might get higher yield through a biopsy. Um, so to diagnose TB meningitis kind of in a nutshell, you need the risk factors, you need you know, radiographic findings such as 
a, a basilar meningitis on, say, a young individual with risk factors, you know, something like that. It's more uh, typical. Um, and, uh, you know, get your, get your samples. Uh, you're going to see a lymphocytic pleocytosis with hypoglycorrhagia. Uh, remember that sometimes the glucose looks normal on your CSF, but if you look at the CSF in the, in the bloodstream, sorry, the, the glucose in the bloodstream, then the relationship there is, is a little bit more drastic. Um, um, and uh, last but not least, you know, when measuring a TSD, remember that the risk factors of the patient, uh, you know, if you have risk factors and you're immunocompetent, then expect 10 or above. If you have risk factors and you're immunocompromised, then probably between five and 10. So above five, uh, above 10, and then above 15 for that rare crop of people that, um, you know, get a test with, with no risk factors. Yeah, absolutely. And then lastly, the complications, right? Or tuberculosis meningitis. You can get hydrocephalus. It's pretty, uh, you can get, um, that's why it's important, you know, for to when you're suspecting tuberculosis meningitis, probably to CT before the tap. Because you can get hydrocephalus that can be that alter mental status that I talked about might not be due just to tuberculosis, but it may be due to a patient going into impending uh, problems and hydrocephalus. Um, so that is a complication causes a lot of uh, fibrosis and then it obstructs uh, the flow of the CSF um, of the fluid and then you can cause hydrocephalus. It can also cause hyponatremia, like all brain uh, problems. Um, so that you can get the vignette that the patient's getting complicated. And that, that would be more for the, perhaps for the infectious disease fellow, but, you know, hyponatremia, um, hydrocephalus, and also you can have vision loss from that second cranial nerve abnormality. Um, it encases the second cranial nerve because fibrosis, and it can cause um, a, a problem of vision loss. So, um, because it, it is very, in, in the, in the, um, those of you who have been or will be to the Dominican Republic, when we go there to see patients, we'll see patients that are really impacted and impaired by, uh, CNS tuberculosis. Some folks go blind. Some folks never recovered the third nerve palsy. And if they have spinal complication of tuberculosis, they can have paresis or problems uh, with motion. So it's a pretty dreaded complication. So when you suspect it, you should um, immediately start treatment. Should probably yeah. let them go. Yeah, and the treatment, I think, uh, you know, it's not just your usual uh, ripe for two months and then, you know, uh, two drugs for, uh, if there's no resistance, you know, you pick the, the, the two drugs that you can for, uh, for the rest of the duration, but it's a longer duration, about 12 months total. And it's one of those body uh, cavities or organs where if you have TB, you may have to add steroids. So steroids for CNS tuberculosis, it's, it's, it's pretty highly deadly. And again, just very, you know, a, a terrible disease um, to have. Yeah. So you just suspect that that's another thing that you can get on the vignette is like, they will, they may want you to think to, to remember that when you treat it, you need to add steroids so you find the answer because because a lot of inflammation you can cause a paradoxical reaction um and 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 get worse before it gets better so you want to add those uh, steroids the other pearl 
in that um, in treatment is you you may get an HIV infected patients because it is so prevalent and so common in patients who are immunosuppressed. You want to delay if it's CNS tuberculosis the initiation of antiretroviral therapy for at least six to eight weeks because then what happens is you can have an immune reconstitution syndrome. And unlike an immune reconstitution syndrome in the lung or in any other part of the body, in the CNS, it can be deadly because it can result in increased intracranial pressure and the patient um, can die. Um, and so you want to start treatment with RIPE, um, start steroids, and then delay antiretrovirals until at least six to eight weeks after the patient. So, so you can decrease the chances that the patient can get immune reconstitution. Absolutely. And then to conclude, Dr. Brito, um, you know, we're always trying to look for how these conditions affect our patients or health disparities. Who gets tuberculosis in Chicago or in the United States for that matter? You mentioned HIV. HIV is an important, um, you know, group of patients that are at much higher risk of reactivation. And in general, you should always test for HIV when you're looking for, you know, or, or considering or seeing tuberculosis, uh, you know, in any organ. Um, so, so HIV is one. Um, what about ethnically and from, uh, you, you know, overall uh, epidemiology? Who gets tuberculosis? Yeah. So tuberculosis is the epitome of health disparities along with HIV. Because um, the disease that in order to get it, uh, you know, it is more important in places where there is malnutrition. Um, it is more common to get reactivation tuberculosis if you're malnourished. Um, in places where you have a lot of crowding, um, like if you live in a house and with your father and your mother and, and you and your brother, then it's less likely to get tuberculosis than when you grow in a household of 10 people. Um, or, you know, it's highly associated with going to prison or confined environments. So it's kind of the, uh, uh, it's kind of the zenith of, of, you know, of, uh, of health disparities. It's seen in countries with a lot of poverty. In the U.S., it's seen in folks with uh, lots of people um, uh, in, 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 in places where there is a lot of poverty. And it affects brown and black people. In the in the U.S., for example, Hispanics account for a third of all the incident cases, um, and so do African Americans. Almost, you know, the thirty percent rule that applies to almost every disease, including COVID. Uh, you know, in disparities, is thirty percent in African Americans, thirty percent in Hispanics, and this is a disease that is no different. Yeah. Um, so, is is highly correlated. It's a social determinants of health are really important to consider um, when, when talking about the disease and talking about eliminating this disease from populations. Yeah, pretty fascinating. I mean, 30% and 30%, that's about 70% black and brown communities. And, you know, the, the, the black and brown, uh, uh, you know, total account for the population is, is about half of that. So, so it, you know, 10%, 14% of the population, yet 30 or 40% of uh, of, uh, you know, tuberculosis cases. Um, most cases also just in the past 10 or 15 years have transitioned from, uh, from local born to foreign born, uh, um, you know, immigrants as well. So, so that speaks a lot about 
tuberculosis control and public health interventions. Many of the patients you see in the hospital, you don't necessarily follow afterwards. And, uh, and frankly, we don't either. Uh, uh, we see them with much less frequency than our Department of Health does. And the Department of Health knows who they are, where they live, who they've been in contact with. And that's really, you know, uh, the beauty of, of public health and, uh, um, you know, tuberculosis control. I agree. And, and if you look at just to, um, to um, put in perspective, and, and so you have an idea how these things overlap. Um, you know, if you look at in Chicago, um, if you look at the mortality associated with COVID during the pandemic and the mortality associated with tuberculosis, it's almost exactly the same. So it's 30% uh, of all the people who have died from COVID in Chicago are Hispanic or African-Americans. So 30% Hispanics, 30% African-Americans, 30-something percent everybody else. So it's the rule of 30%. And if you see the numbers of COVID, and if you overlap it with the map of diabetes or out-of-control diabetes or the map of HIV, you will see that the areas and the groups that are most affected by these diseases are exactly the same. Um, not in the not in the incident cases, in the cases of COVID, anybody can get COVID, but the people who die from COVID are usually that same 30% that is highly exposed to tuberculosis and you're going to see in your clinics or in the hospital with reactivation tuberculosis. So that's why it's important to always consider the social determinants of health when looking at diseases like this, which yeah. are diseases of poverty. No, absolutely. And, you know, I, I've i seen a case of or two of TB meningitis when I was a, a resident. Um, those are rare things to see in the United States. Um, I've, you know, in the past year, I've seen one or two uh, young patients that did quite poorly. Uh, you know, one of them died in their 30s with uh, pulmonary TB. Uh, and it, I think we forget that tuberculosis is, you know, the leading cause of death. Uh, you know, along, you know, the top three ID causes of death, malaria, TB, HIV worldwide. Um, but looking at these numbers, I mean, these are just some brief statistics. In 2018, 10 million uh, uh, TB cases and 1.5 million TB deaths. Uh, that's a lot, um, you know, worldwide. And uh, luckily, we don't have a lot of TB here. The less TB you have in a place, the less extra pulmonary TB you'll have, which is why it's important for us to learn about these things and recognize them when we see them. Great. All right. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Brita. Not a problem. It was a pleasure. It was fun. Thanks and thank you, everybody. Um, we will catch you with uh, some more topics in a bit. Bye-bye.